The pivot to paid is the new pivot to video. Look around media and it won't be long until you stumble on a publisher implementing a new subscription plan. In many ways, this is a return to sanity. Media has long thrived on multiple revenue streams, and direct payments from the audience is a sensible basis for any business. Jessica Lesson, a former Wall Street Journal reporter, founded the information about five years ago with the, at the time, heretical notion that people should pay for high-quality reporting. Since then, Jessica and her team have built the information to a 23-person newsroom and over 10,000 subscribers. I'm Brian Marcy, and this is the Digiday Podcast. On this episode, we spoke to Jessica by Skype for a progress report on the information, the subscriptions-focused media incubator the company has set up, and why media people should stop rooting for platform censorship of speech that media people happen not to like and even find deeply offensive. Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. We're doing this remotely, so this is somewhat of a new uh, thing for us. Um, So give us the update on the business. How many subs, how many people are you? Uh, So our team, the information has grown um, tremendously over the past year. So we've doubled the size of our reporting team. Um, We now have um, 23 folks, reporters and editors across four offices. and then we've um, grown our overall team by just under two-thirds as well. So um, we've been doing that because business is strong. Um, we still aren't revealing our subscriber numbers, but um, we've had our, our best Q2 yet. You know, the combination of expanding our team has allowed us to cover more areas and um, really branch out beyond tech a little bit, um, which is very exciting to us. And um, I think is, is leading to, you know, some of the strongest growth we've seen. Mm-hmm. So are you seeing growth particularly, I mean, because I think the question when it, when it comes to scale is whether this is is a vertical with technology or whether this is like horizontal because business or technology is going across sort of all business right now. Yeah, look, I say, you know, the phrase used to be follow the money. And that was how you thought about like business journalism. I, I think the new mantra for business journalism is follow the tech. I've always seen, you know, tech as the lens for really understanding what's transforming every industry. And, you know, when we started um, you know, four and a half years ago, we said, okay, let, let's win in Silicon Valley. Um, like, let's get the people, the decision makers in the industry uh, who know what's going on. Let's be valuable to them first because they're a tough audience to please, well, not please, but to be valuable to because by definition, they, they know a lot. Um, and, you know, we'll focus on stuff that's super valuable for them. But the idea has always been that as we did that, subscribers in finance, automotive, retail, um, would turn to us to understand how the tech companies were running and operating, but also how technology was working in their industry. So we made, um, you know, bets in covering the automotive industry more aggressively, um, obviously, the financial sector, um, we're about to launch a new crypto newsletter and have been ramping up our crypto coverage um, to take advantage of um, that intersection. Um, and so I think we're, it's still early days, but we're on that journey of, um, you know, really serving the broader business audience. Um, but we do that by saying, you know, what we're good at um, and, and deeply sourced in is the world of technology. That's just you know, it, it's not a niche play by no stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. So you, is, do you have more subscribers outside of Silicon Valley than inside? 
We do. Um, you know, we have about a third um, on the West Coast, uh, about another third in New York, and the rest globally. Okay. So how has the model changed in a way that you didn't expect? Because anytime you start something new, you've got uh, an idea about how it'll play out, and then you meet reality. I think that, I mean, one of the things I'm most focused on now, because I think is super important, and I wasn't focused on in the beginning, uh, is personalization. So, you know, as we've added a greater variety of content um, and more content, you know, gone from just a few articles a day to a few articles plus um, a daily briefing email plus conference calls um, and, and other things, um, you know, personalization has become really important because I think any media company these days, you're not just, you know, building what you think of as a publication, you're, you're building this brand that your audience deems as hyper-valuable to them. That's why they let you in their inbox. Um, you know, that's why they keep reading. And so it's really important, you know, to find ways to continue to meet that very high bar for readers when you're writing about more subjects. You know, we do a lot of coverage of the enterprise cloud world, AWS, you know, chips, uh, you, you sort of name it. Um, that is incredibly important business coverage. It actually has a fairly big audience because every business is a customer of that. Um, but, you know, some people sort of couldn't care less. Um, and so how do we make sure um, not to let them kind of over filter because they might be interested in that and, and we hold ourselves to making the case for why they should be. Um, but you know, to, to get them to feel that on a regular basis we're hitting exactly, um, you know, what they want. And I think that's a technical challenge in some regards and a product challenge, um, you know, as much as editorial. And so I think that's become this, this new part of the, the landscape that, you know, great subscription businesses really have to compete on. Um, if you look at Netflix and Spotify, they nailed that and they nailed it pretty early. Um, and I think the news industry sort of needs to catch up. It, it goes beyond, you know, you read this, you might also like this. Um, and I think into thinking about, you know, products and services um, that may be deeply relevant to some part of the community, um, but not others. How does being a subscription business change the editorial approach, or does it not? And, and by that, I mean, you get a lot of signals about what works on the subscription side um, when you start to talk about customer journeys and the conversion funnel. Um, does that inform the editorial choices or not? It's hard to say, actually, to be honest, because our main editorial process is still reporter-led, bottom-up. You know, weekly meetings, what are you working on? Um, what are you hearing? Uh, how can we collaborate to make it happen? So. You know, that's how stories come to be at the information. Um, where we look at a lot of data is around, um, you know, did we package and sell that story well? You know, we had a hit, the story that had a tremendous amount of reporting, um, didn't seem to hit as much. Oh, wait, we forgot to put the name of the company in the headline. You know, stuff like that. Um, I think that... But you're not looking uh, at like, okay, this type of coverage converts better, so we got to do more of this kind of coverage. This stuff does not convert as well, so let's do less of it. We really don't, honestly. I mean, I, and what we find is that 
you know, the stories that frankly convert well are just the really original ones you can't get elsewhere. Um, and they span a huge range of, of huge range of subject matters. So, um, you know, even if you wrote, you know, a category that considered a hit category, say Apple, you know, you could write a sort of follow-on Apple story that everyone else has written, and that story wouldn't wouldn't perform well because it's already out there um, and it's not considered new. So um, that's really far and away the biggest thing that determines how a story performs. We, we also look at performance across a lot of metrics. There's, um, you know, the overall readership of a story. You know, the overall readership of our audience is, you know, it's, it's 10x our subscriber base because we let people read articles in exchange for their emails. So, um, you know, we do look at that too. We look at how many um, subscriptions did this story drive? How many people converted to read it? Um, I care very deeply about the percent of subscribers that read every story. Um, you know, that number you would goes down over time when you have many more subscribers and you're writing many more stories, but um, it's something we still, um, you know, try and keep in a really solid range. So there's also a lot of different metrics. Um, I will say, and, and this is, I think is part of your question, and many smart people have said this lately, you know, there, there is a danger in a subscription business to play to your base, absolutely. Um, and I think, um, I, I think about it only in sort of a high level of, of trying to, you know, check and make sure that we're sort of not doing it. Um, but what I've always found is that, and, and there are different ways of playing to your base, but I've always found that the second you sort of do that, you, you actually lose the respect of the base in some way because people are saying, you know, this doesn't seem that rigorous, this doesn't seem up to your usual standards, why am I paying $400 a year for it? So, so I think the nature of the product and the competition out there are a nice check against it, but, you know, it is something that I think about in, in particularly in column writing. Um, you know, you want to make sure that you're not just getting a bunch of people sort of cheering you on every time you write a column that, that there's some healthy debate. Yeah, and it's also both ways because a lot of publications use virtue signaling as a way to get people to subscribe. But the problem when you do that is when you go against that perceived virtue, then you're going to lose subscribers. So you kind of, you kind of get trapped. Like if you were to if you were to get people, you know, that would unsubscribe because you're too tough on Uber, um, although these days probably wouldn't unsubscribe. But um, I don't know. It's it's a hard one to to figure out. It is, and I, you know, at the end of the day, I, I mean, I think it manifests mostly in sort of the columns. To be honest, I think when it comes to in-depth corporate stories, like you know, we recently had a big story around what went on with Snap's famous redesign, right? We knew it was a disaster, but why on earth had Evan pushed it? What had gone wrong? What had failed? And, um, you know, a story like that we're writing, you know, because we think it provides some really important insight into an important company. It's not, um, you know, inherently, it's less polarizing than maybe some other subjects you could write about it, you know, in today's day and age. Right. So, I think in the beginning of a subscription program, you're always trying to get people to sign up, but then you start to you start to do the two front war because you're fighting churn. What's that been like? We're incredibly fortunate that churn isn't an issue for us. So we have you know um, very low churn. Um, we have a 
large percentage, uh, more than half of our subscribers pay us annually. Um, and those subscribers really have um, you know, very, very negligible churn. Um, but we, we focus a lot on subscriber engagement and the subscriber experience because um, you're right, it, it is an important um, piece of the puzzle. Um, you know, where that's where a lot of our personalization sort of tests are coming in um, to make sure, you know, we look at MPS scores and all that sort of thing. So, um, you know, it is a big, we're sort of obsessed with it and the subscriber experience and getting feedback from subscribers. Um, and I, I think so far we've been fortunate that those investments have, have paid off. So a lot of publishers are rolling out subscription programs now. It was somewhat more of a novelty, I think, when, when the information started, but now... That, um, that's a nice word. I think people thought we were crazy, Brian. I don't know. Novelty. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there's, there's been... yeah. <laughs> there is a long history, particularly of business-focused publications charging for, for access, um, but we're seeing this go well beyond and, and into a lot more you know, lifestyle-type uh, content um, that's going to be it's going to be tougher to do. Um, I don't know. Have you been encouraged by the fact that more publications are realizing that ads alone are not going to cut it? I have been. Um, I think it's a great step that realizing readers, uh, in many cases in addition to advertisers, but um, is a really healthy way to grow a business. Uh, the concern I still have is whether the products are catching up. Um, you know, you, you, you don't become a, a successful subscription business when you put a paywall up. You become a successful subscription business when you have content that's worth paying for. And it's a really big difference. Um, and I think that the ones, many will be successful um, that meet that bar and that have, you know, truly original either reporting teams and news or content creation in other areas of media. Um, but it's um, you know, otherwise it's just, you know, something you announce in a press release, but I, I think won't be a sustainable revenue stream over the long term. Yeah. So give me the case for not having a hybrid model. And, and, and do you rule out a hybrid model? Because as a business, it's always good to make money a bunch of different ways. I think subscriptions are a great way to have a base um, because it's better to have annual recurring revenue and start the year with, with a bunch of money that you're fairly certain you're going to, to have. Um, but why not have multiple sources of revenue? I, it, why is it all subscription? So the reason we've been all subscription is really just a question of focus. I think when you're a small team, it's hard enough to win at one thing. Um, it's really hard to win at multiple things. And I do think that when you're small, the temptations and challenges over serving different constituencies are very sort of hard to manage. Um, you know, the, there are editorial differences in writing, uh, you know, sort of judging your editorial strategy based on the satisfaction of your readers versus judging it based on the satisfaction of your advertisers. So, so that's why, um, you know, we, we haven't even okay. thought but it's about not like a, a it's not like a religious thing or something like that. that no, uh... and, and I was going to say, I mean, I think I'm confident we will have multiple revenue streams. I mean, we may even start experimenting with things in the next year. Um, well, events is an obvious question. place to start. I mean, why not sell 
event sponsorships? Why not sell tickets to the events to people who are not subscribers? Yeah, we do a little bit of that now, actually. Um, I mean, right now, about over 90% of our revenue is subscription revenue, but, you know, there is a 9% or so in there. Um, look, I, I think we'll do more of that. The, the honest-to-goodness answer is that the subscription business is a fabulous business um, in the sense that um, we don't have the salesperson. Um, you know, the, the beauty of a subscription business is it sells itself if you create a great product. Um, it's recurring revenue. It's zero marginal cost. You know, the lifetime value of our subscribers is way north of a thousand dollars. And I think we're just in the earliest days of that business. So, um, you know, that's always where we continue to focus. But I think as our team has grown and, um, you know, we, we do have um, a really unique audience. I think there are a lot of additional services we can give them too. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll try some of that as well because I, I agree, you know, our goal is really to scale, you know, our newsroom to many size of many multiples of what it is now. And, um, you know, revenue is what will help us do that. Quick break to tell you about Digiday Plus. Each week, I invariably talk to publishers about how they're diversifying their businesses and often adding in membership programs. Well, we're no different. Digiday Plus is our premium membership program for people in media, marketing, tech, even investors in order to get a leg up. Here's how they do it. Digiday Plus members get access to exclusive content. Each day, we have pieces only available for them, along with invites to our member events, early access to this podcast and our top story of the day, exclusive research we do on top industry trends, and much more. Please visit digiday.com, and you'll see the Plus tab at the top of the page. Digiday Plus membership is $395 a year, but if you use the code PODCAST at checkout, you'll get 20% off. Please do check it out. I promise it's worth it. Now back to the episode. Okay, so talk to me about the incubator because you talked about focus. And I know when I saw the incubator, I was like, well, gosh, I mean, running a business is hard enough. Why do this on the side? Yeah. So um, last year we launched um, an accelerator program where we invested in five journalists building subscription businesses, and we mentor them and sort of coach them throughout the year um, and um, take a very small percentage of, of their um, new revenues after joining us. So, um, you know, I honestly started it because we were seeing um, this sort of tidal wave of interest in subscription, and I had been living and breathing it and, and wanted to help uh, in a way that was also somewhat streamlined, that, that wasn't you know, just a bunch of calls here and there doing what I could. So, um, you know, we, we started it because we believe passionately that if we want quality news and information, um, subscription has to be at the heart of it. And, um, you know, we're not going to write every story ourselves. Uh, so um, a little bit of just a kind of passion project um, that I also, you know, so, so with that sort of passion project in mind, we said, you know, is there something that over time could be interesting from a business perspective as well. Um, and so, you know, we think it could be because we're meeting and working with incredible journalists in a lot of areas that there may also be um, synergies with our business and things we can learn about other subject matters. So, um, you know, we, we um, have a woman um, running the program, Maria, you know, really is in the trenches with these companies um, and, uh, you know, really focused on it. So it doesn't 
uh, take a tremendous amount of time from our team, but um, we're super excited about it. We just closed uh, the second year of applications, had more than 100 applicants from dozens of countries again. And um, I think this afternoon, I've got my first round of Skype interviews with some of the finalists. So, um, you know, I, I've actually found it's been this incredible, also, um, you know, just nice kind of extra motivator um, in building a business as well to be talking and learning from people in different phases of the experience, but who are doing great things. So, um, it absolutely takes up time, but uh, I think it's more than worth it. Are you seeing more focus on local news? Because that seems like an area that needs, it certainly needs to be figured out. I mean, here in New York, we, uh, the Daily News just had a bloodbath, and I mean, and that's in New York. Um, what are you seeing on the local front? Absolutely. I mean, the need is certainly there. Um, we have a local news entrepreneur, Ashley Woods, in our first batch, um, and she's launched Detour Detroit um, to cover local news in Detroit. She was previously at the Detroit Free Press. Um, and, um, you know, we're talking to a number, uh, some in California, some all over the country, I think, for the second batch. So um, the interest is there. I think, um, you know, the entrepreneurs we're seeing are running into the same questions around business model, um, you know, then sort of how do you monetize local news. But I think, you know, I just go back to write things people want that they can't get elsewhere. And it seems like with the retreat and coverage, um, there are a lot of corners of coverage that are very valuable and, and, and they don't need to have 100,000 readers on day one to get going. So, um, you know, I also, there's a number of nonprofit experiments, venture funds, trying to back local news. Um, you know, even some of the, I guess Facebook launched a local news accelerator. So um, I, I hope that it's sort of galvanizing some interest and talent back into the space. But um, it, it sort of, I think, still feels like a slog, but there's definitely interest. Right. Uh, so final thing I want to talk about Facebook. I think uh, the previous time you were on here, uh, you had a good quote about, you know, media thinks uh, Facebook is really cares about media, but that's not actually the case. Um, since then, Facebook's gotten beaten up quite a bit across a bunch of different fronts. Um, at this point of the program, we are, we are hearing renewed calls for Facebook to take responsibility for what is being published on its platform um, and to take off uh, uh, content like, like InfoWars. Um, you, you've written about this quite a bit. Um, I, I get the sense that, that you definitely see a sort of a sticky situation arising when Facebook starts to be the arbiter of truth. Absolutely. I think everyone should see that as a quite sticky situation. Um, you know, I, the, this current debate over the extent of um, policing of the platform, you know, that Facebook should do, I, I think there's a dilemma at the heart of it most people don't talk about, which is, you know, Facebook is two different kinds of companies. And, and I think it's really both. It is absolutely a media company. And, um, you know, and, and by media company, it responsible for media companies are responsible for what's posted on their platforms and the accuracy of that um, and um, you know Facebook monetizes itself as a media company by selling ads against that and so I think um, you know that that attribute of Facebook 
lend itself to, you know, Facebook drawing a much harder line on what is allowed on the platform and, um, you know, stepping into the role of, um, you know, determining what's true or not. The challenge is also that Facebook is a platform. Um, you know, Facebook is not the internet, but in some parts of the world, it sort of is. And, um, you know, in the same way that YouTube and these other services sort of exist and have served a purpose by letting people um, post their views, you know, th there's there's value in that. There's value to society in that. And I think the, the folks who are too quick to just say, you know, if it is not true, it should not be on Facebook, um, you know, are, are sort of forgetting that. And it's, it's a very, you know, it's one thing to say the New York Times with three million subscribers, um, you know, can sort of determine um, and, and is responsible for um, what's in their pages and their editorials and like set a point of view. Um, but when you're doing that for what two and a half billion people now, um, yeah, it does get a bit uncomfortable in thinking about how Facebook should draw the line. So, you know, my personal belief is that this is an area where the government sort of, you know, this is sort of the role of the government um, in determining, again, you know, where each country wants to draw the line and how they determine um, what speech is allowed, what speech is restricted. Um, it seems like that is their purview. Um, and, and I suspect that we'll see um, in the U.S. a sort of greater asserting of that. And we've, we've certainly seen that elsewhere in the world. But, um, you know, in the meantime, we're in this sort of tough zone where no one, including Facebook, sort of knows what it is. And, and that's deeply uncomfortable and, and I think troubling as well. Yeah, it seems like uh, Facebook's going to continue to have these contortions when presented with specific cases because the the policy can go both ways. I don't know if it if it leads to imminent violence, then it's no good. But uh, there's a lot of of things that are that are in between on this. Completely, and you know it's. Facebook and Zuckerberg say that, you know, they're uncomfortable with playing that arbiter sometimes. And, you know, he's floated the idea of some sort of community of Facebook users drawing those lines. Um, that seems super complicated to me. Um, I think you already have governments, um, you know, they're sort of natural ones to do it. You know, the, the, the puzzle gets even more interesting when you think about developments in AI um, that actually make it possible to police this, these huge amounts of, of content uh, like never before as well. Um, and that, again, that's a tool that, you know, if you're out there decrying fake news, we're very glad um, that those AI tools are being developed, but you have to watch how they're being applied very, very carefully because, um, you know, Facebook is now, it used to be like, how on earth could you police something like this? And um, by all accounts, they now could. Um, and, um, you know, that means that we have to take this issue very seriously and, and, you know, come up with ways for the lines to be drawn that everyone, you know, or no one can agree on everything, but, you know, make more sense than leaving it up to one person or one company. What do you see as the impact of this pressure that Facebook's under from kind of all sides now, even Wall Street, uh, obviously, with the big, the big sell-off recently, but governments... Publishers are clearly have been pressuring, um, and and now also Wall Street. 
You know, I, I think that um, I imagine the company's just going to try and keep its heads down and execute um, because, uh, you know, the winds do turn um, and that's sort of, I think, all that you can do in this kind of situation is try as much as possible to stay focused on, on doing what you think is right. Um, you know, the I don't think the pressure is going away anytime soon. I mean, it was sort of strange to watch reporters gleefully tweeting Facebook's disappointing earnings and the ensuing, you know, huge stock declines. It was sort of, you know, it was like, are you, are you reporting on what's happened here? Or are you just, you know, happy that this company is, has lost a bunch of market cap? I mean, it was so, I, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of that kind of going on, but um, you know, you in Silicon Valley, you always look for um, you know if employee morale um, takes a hit. You know, this is a very tight recruiting uh, environment out here, and um, the companies take that very seriously. So, you know, if if employees are jumping ship um, at a you know greater rate than usual, I, I think stuff like that would be highly problematic. But, um, you know, the great CEOs across the board just find a way to actually turn these into moments of sort of galvanizing the troops and sticking to the mission. And, and you know, the a lot of, well, it, it's hard to parse out, you know, I mean, Facebook's sort of suffering from um, dramatically slowing user growth in the U.S., but, but some of the poor financial performance has been because of the investments that it's making in improved quality um, that everyone's been calling for, right? So I, I think that to the extent, um, you know, the company is behind that, which I think they are, and, and, and that was something that there was all, there were also calls for inside of Facebook, um, you know, th there's sort of broad sense that they're pursuing the right strategy. Put poor in quotes, I think, on, on Facebook's financials. Yes. <laughs> Um, yes. Well, no. I mean, like it's an expectation game. That's it was that's like only up it, right? what forty two percent or something. Uh, it's it's terrible. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> to grow revenue at that scale with those margins, um, but but it's not to. Um, but the results know, were user growth is not great. No, um, in not in its most world. mature and, markets. No. Yeah. So I mean, I think everyone's right to pay close attention and scrutinize and, and you know figure out what the company is going to do about that. Yeah, I have to say, I, from here the the financial results were interesting just because having covered you know Google over the years particularly closely, they can dial in revenue wherever they want. You know, when Google wanted to have a a, a great quarter, like every single person I talked to in search marketing just said, yeah, the number of number of ads per page just increases over six weeks. So I I don't know if. Uh, maybe I'm watching too much Infowars to be too conspiratorial about this, but um, it seemed very curious. It seemed like maybe it was a little bit strategic. Then again, nobody wants to lose 120 billion in market cap. No, but I, I think that's a good point. You know, there's a, there's more um, strategy and tactics behind this than than people sitting where we sit sort of realize. Right, Jessica. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me, Brian. Always a pleasure. That's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening. This show is produced by Aditi Sangal. If you liked our show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and or anchor.fm. We'll be back next week with a new episode.